Luke chapter 12, verse 35. This is the word of God. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third he, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Thus far, the reading of God's word. So if you haven't already, uh, please do turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, as was just read. We're going to be looking at that small section today in Luke 12, 35 to 40. And I've titled the message today, uh, Living in Light of Jesus' Return. Today we'll be looking at the doctrine of Jesus' return, uh, or some people know it as the doctrine of the second coming, the return of Christ. And the doctrine of Jesus' second coming is very important. I think everyone here could agree on that. If it is true, which Christians we believe this is true, this is very important. And I also feel that this is something that's somewhat or rather neglected in our day. It seems to me like people do not talk about this all that often. I, I could pose the question to all of you, uh, how many times this week, while you are doing your daily routines or whatever, did you think about the fact that Jesus is coming back? That Jesus is coming back to this earth? You see, this doctrine, this belief, this text that we're looking at today is not just something to think about when you're dying and on your last breath and to give you hope while you are about to pass away. If we see in this text today, which we'll be looking at, this is a, a belief and a truth for all of us in every part of our life. When we are going through joyful Thanksgiving seasons or going through immense suffering and pain. This is an important truth for, for all parts of our life. So then I had to think this week while I was preparing, why has there been so much silence on this doctrine and in this area in particular uh, in more recent times? And I recall I've been looking into past decades and how people did or didn't talk about this. And I noticed that in previous decades, there was actually large amounts of resources, books, movies, and television shows even talking about the return of Christ. And... In fact, Christians used to talk about this a lot more. 
And I got to thinking, why is this? In particular, looking back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a, a branch of theology called dispensational theology, which, pr which produced a tremendous amount of resources. In the early 1900s, for example, the, the Schofield Bible came out, which uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Do any of you have the Schofield Bible here? Just wondering. One? Okay. Um, likewise, uh, some books came out. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Left Behind series. Many, many books. <clears throat> likewise, uh, there was a book that came out called The Late Great Planet Earth, which at the time was one of the top-selling books uh, in the Christian circles. Have any of you heard of any of these books? Raise a hand. Yeah, a few. Okay. And um, movies like A Thief in the Night came out, um, which was actually pretty popular at the time. And this was in previous decades, so there were all these resources and, and people talking about the return of Christ, people speculating, people going into the Bible about it. And today, it doesn't feel like, I could be wrong, but from what I've seen when I go to the bookstores and such, I don't see that many resources, new ones, about this topic in the same way that has happened in the past. So, so why is that? Well, I think that it's a bit of the pendulum swing. When, when we What's happened, I think, in the past is that some of the resources that have been produced and thought of and, and written, some of them, not all of them, have gone a little too far into speculation and, and into theorizing things that aren't actually explained in Scripture. And when that happens too much, too fast, and for too many people, there can be the reverse reaction. Ooh, so many people are talking constantly about the return of Christ and getting into these weird ideas and going too far. So my reaction is, I'm just not going to think about it at all. And I'm not going to study it at all, because that's what the weird people do. And I don't want to be one of those people. So it seems like there's been a bit of a, a pendulum swing in this area. I can actually recall a, a conversation I had with a, a great pastor many, many years ago. And uh, I was talking to him about, I don't even remember what it was exactly, but he brought up, for some reason, his um, beliefs on the end times. And he was bringing up what's called the millennium. And course, with the millennium, there are uh, different views in the book of Revelation on what the millennium represents. Um, there's the pre-millennial view, the all-millennial view, and the post-millennial view. And this pastor said, well, I don't have any of those views. My view is I'm a pan-millennial. And then he said, I believe it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> and um, I think that's probably true for a lot of us in the sense that if we haven't really thought about it, then that's just what we're going to say. It just pans out. Like, yeah, I don't need to think about this. And I can appreciate the thought because it's not getting into speculation, but, but I think there could be a loss there as well because the Bible does teach us some things about the return of Christ. It does teach us enough that we should look into it, not to completely ignore this as if it's not important for us today. And if we only think of the doctrine of Christ's second coming as something to avoid so we don't look weird, then we're going to actually miss out on precious truths that will impact us on how we live today. An example that I can think of in particular that has put off people on the doctrine of Jesus' second coming is even um, the date May 21st, 2011. I don't know if any of you have heard that date in particular, the reference. But there was a big radio uh, program all across the world called Family Radio, and, and the leader of that uh, ministry was uh, named Harold Camping. And he was very famous because he predicted that Jesus was coming back for sure on May 21st, 2011. And he made that the core of his ministry. Now, that wasn't a side point for him. The, everything that he had talked about centered around this idea that on May 21st, 
2011, Jesus is coming back, and that was that. And in fact, it got so bad that what they did was they paid for over 3,000 humongous billboards. I'm not talking about the little lawn signs we have for the election today or anything like that, but just massive, huge, you know, highway billboards, 3,000 of them all over the world, through the United States, through um, places in Asia, like they were all over the world. And this is what the signs said, amongst other things. It said, Judgment Day, May 21st, the Bible guarantees it. Um, and this was their message on the radio every single day, on the signs all throughout the world. And I was listening to some of the things that they were producing, and some of their people that worked in their ministry said, oh, I need a new car and things like that. But it's only a couple months away. Like, do I really want to put all this investment into a car when I know it's going to be useless in two months anyways? And it'll just be gone or destroyed. And people were changing their lives based on this belief they had. So, of course, there, this was incorrect and wrong. And, of course, we know Jesus in Scripture does tell us that we cannot predict the day or the hour. That's not for us to speculate on. But these things, examples like this, I think have turned off many from even studying eschatology or the doctrine of the end times at all because we don't want to start going into those speculative places. But on the other side, we do see in the New Testament, Jesus talks about the second coming a lot. And it's not a minor topic for him. It's one of the most discussed topics that Jesus goes into if you read through the Gospels in terms of his return, what will happen at the end. Likewise, if you look at the books in the New Testament, almost every single book in the New Testament mentions the doctrine of the end times. If you were to go through each book of the New Testament, only Galatians and then 2nd, 3rd John and Jude don't mention it. Every single other book does, and Jesus himself mentions it frequently. So just because some people have gone into error with these beliefs doesn't mean we should stop studying this, and there's still core truths to see. Practically speaking, I think it's very helpful for us to know what our end goal is as Christians and what we're heading towards. We do this in every area of our life, if you think about it. When you go to university, you have some kind of goal in mind, whether it's to get a degree, to help you with your job, to continue your lifelong learning. People don't just go to university because they want to just waste money and not do anything. They don't just say, well, I'm just going to spend $2,000 per course just because it's fun to see credits on my transcript. That's not how things work. In the same way with, of course, uh, dating. I mean, especially for Christians, we should be purposeful on that. We, we see that people do it for a reason, to evaluate whether they should be going towards marriage. Likewise, in our careers, we have jobs. We must have reasons behind that, whether it's to make money, to be providing for the family, to be advancing in our own career. There are reasons and end goals for all of these things that we do. So, of course, with our Christian faith as well, there's an end goal that we're looking forward to as we live out our life, as we do our day-to-day -day faith. The fact that Jesus is coming back, the fact that God's kingdom is coming in full. From here, let's take a look at the text and see what Jesus himself has to teach us about the second coming and how that should affect us then today. In particular, I want to start at the last verse that we read today. That is verse 40. Verse 40 says, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the first thing we should note in this text then is it is a certainty that Jesus is coming back. It's not a possibility or 
something that is based upon events of history that may or may not happen. The fact of Jesus coming back is a certainty. And you can imagine this might have been confusing to the disciples at the time when Jesus was still with them. But this is a certainty that he emphasizes in the scripture. Why would the Christians have to be ready if he wasn't coming back? He says, you must also must be ready. It's not a suggestion. It is an imperative, a must. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming. Not maybe coming, but he is. And this is uh, an immediate thing that we should have on our minds. He's not saying, you must be ready in a hundred years or a thousand years. He's saying this at the present, even before he had ascended into heaven. Some people may note, well, because of the predictions in the Bible about floods and earthquakes at the end times, that uh, things aren't bad enough yet for Jesus to be coming back very soon, so we don't really have to worry about that. But I don't think that's wise to do. All throughout Scripture, the idea of Jesus' return is that he's coming soon. In Revelation, the very last chapter of the entire Bible, in 20, chapter 22, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And that may sound strange because you might think, well, it's been 2,000 years. How could you say that's soon? That seems like a long time to me already that, that we've been waiting for this. So how could you say 2,000 years is soon? But if we look at other scriptures, I think they actually help to illustrate what this really means. And, and the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 gives us help. It says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So to us, it could feel like 2,000 years, this is a long time that we're supposed to think is coming soon. But in God's eyes, that's like two days. So it's not like we missed something. It's not like Jesus came back and we forgot. It's, yes, he's coming back soon. And it might not feel like soon for us, but in our minds, we are still called to think of it as coming soon. Because we are to think of it as an immediate thing that could happen at any time. The second thing we learn about in verse 40 is that Jesus will come back in an unexpected way. It says, The Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And to illustrate that, in verse 39, he gives the picture of the thief in the night. In verse 39, he says, Know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. And I'm sure that that would be the same for all of you here today. Somehow I knew there was a thief coming to your house at 6.35 tomorrow. I'm sure you would prepare for that and have something there ready. Whether it was the police, although they might not believe you if you told them ahead of time. But I'm sure you would do something. I, I, I remember my own uh, family, we were broken into many years ago. And there was quite a story to that. But I remember afterwards, as we were trying to secure our apartment better to prevent this from happening again, I just remember thinking, if only we had done this before, we would have got the guy. But, um, but of course we hadn't. And that's the element of surprise. The only thing thieves have going for them is the element of surprise. If they don't have surprise, they have nothing. They're not going to go walking into someone's house while they're still there. Or at least hopefully not. Most thieves are banking on the fact that you're not going to be home. And of course, if we, uh, do some research. It turns out thieves do a lot of research in the work they do to, to find out when people aren't at home, to figure out the best time of day to do it. Um, they want the element of surprise. And this should inform us about how Jesus' return will happen. 
it will be unexpected. It will be a surprise to everyone. The fact is, when Jesus comes back, people will be doing normal people things every day. People will be having their weddings on that day. Uh, people will be doing their jobs on that day. People will be sleeping. Uh, some people will be indulging in gross immorality. All sorts of things will be happening when Jesus comes back because it won't be announced beforehand. It won't be given as a specific time. So people will be doing the things that people do and then things will change and they will be very surprised. So point one in the outline today that we're going through is the return of Jesus is both certain and unexpected. Certain and unexpected. So if this is the case, why don't we then have more of an active anticipation of Christ's return ourselves? I think it's been helpful for me to think through this week as I've been trying to wrestle with how does this text challenge me? And I would encourage all of you to reflect as well. Do you act in your life as if Jesus is coming back, as if that is a real, present reality that you have processed and you really believe in your heart? Am I living with the idea that Jesus is coming back? If he came back right now while I'm working on this keyboard, would I be embarrassed because I've been playing solitaire all day? Or would I I be ready and say, yes, Jesus, I'm ready for you. I'm so happy you're here. It's something for all of us to think of as we, we, we read this text today. Likewise, are we caught up in worldly concerns in our life as the primary thing that we're always thinking about? Or are we letting Christ be the Lord of these events, falling in love with Christ more than the world? Are we ready for Christ's return? It's a reminder to all of us as Christians to have the end goal in mind, not to be the university student who's just registering for courses to be part of a social club and then will drop out because he doesn't have a goal in mind because he's just taking courses for no reason. It's a reminder for us as Christians that we have a great end goal. We have an amazing event that we are actually not suggested to look forward to, but commanded to look forward to and to think upon. From here, I want to look at verses 35 to 38. I know we're kind of going backwards today, but I want to start at the main point of verse 40 and then look at the illustrations that illustrate it. So looking at verse 35 then is how Jesus starts this particular passage. And in it, he talks about getting dressed. And it says in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And from there, he goes on to illustrate this two-part image of slaves or servants who are awaiting their master's return from the wedding. So we found out that this master has gone to a wedding, and weddings at that point, you know, weren't so small as today. You know, weddings for us today could be uh, a very short half an hour to hour ceremony. And then, of course, uh, for whatever reason, the three or four hour gap, and then the long reception afterwards. Um, but in these days, weddings could be days and days, um, and often, of course, much longer than the weddings we have today. And the idea then is that the servants are, are there, and they are supposed to take care of the master's place, because, you know, the master is coming back. The wedding is going to end. But the thing is, if the wedding is that long, they don't know when the master is going to come back. Today, this illustration might not make sense to us. Well, I know when you're going to come back from the wedding. 
the reception starts at 5 o'clock, you'll probably be back by 9 o'clock, and you're eating your dinner. Dinner is not that unpredictable. But back then, you might not even know the day or the hour that the master would be returning. And what is Jesus' um, point as he illustrates this? It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. So the first part is stay dressed for action. And if you look, a lot of you will have footnotes in your Bible on that point. Because the actual, uh, the Greek text there for stay dressed for action is let your loins be girded. Let your loins be girded. Which sounds a little unusual. But the idea of your loins being girded was an image from wearing long robes. And even the men would wear long robes in those days. If you can imagine having a long robe that went far down, you're not going to be ready for action. If you're needing to run somewhere or to do something that's urgent, the last thing you want is a long robe. So what they would do is they would have a way of tying up the robe. I'm really bad at tying things myself, so I tried to find some images to explain this, and I'm probably going to do it wrong. But it's something like you, you put it down, you bring it around, you wrap it up like this, and then suddenly you're more like wearing shorts, so you can actually move around as needed, so you're not going to be stuck. Staying dressed for action, then, is this idea that they can do whatever their master needs right away. And the idea is stay dressed for action. He's saying, look like fools for hours or days until your master comes back from the wedding because you need to be ready to do action. And they would keep themselves in this picture dressed, their loins staying girded. This is actually the same language that's used in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 11, when it talks about the Israelites leaving Egypt to go to the Promised Land. They're called to let their loins stay girded because they also have an urgent job to do. And as you know in that passage, the Egyptians would come back for them. They weren't going to walk around briskly wearing their best robes to show off there. <laughs> they were letting their loins stay girded to get away from the Pharaoh. Even today, uh, this image is relevant. There was a tragic case uh, a couple years ago in which uh, a newlywed couple got on a motorcycle at the end of their wedding, and the wedding dress of the lady got caught in the motorcycle, and and she sadly died from that. Um, this is what the image is talking about. It's letting your dress not get in the way of being able to move and be on action. So we should notice that this is not to be dressed for sleep, Jesus' illustration is not to be dressed for a fancy dinner party, but it's a dress for action. And of course, this is an image to illustrate how we are to think then, how we are to prepare for the second coming of Christ. It's being dressed for action. So this should be then with how we think about our day-to-day -day walks in the world. We have work to do as Christians for everyone. Our work is not just to say, the pastors and missionaries, may they do some good work for Jesus while we do whatever we want at our home. That's not the picture here. It's for everyone. God has created work as a good thing. Work was brought about before the fall itself in Genesis, and it was work to till the earth, to do good. And for whatever works we're doing in our office jobs and the things we do day to day in our studying, may we do our best for Christ in those as we can honor Christ through that. Even if we're not pastors or missionaries, we can honor Christ through the nine-to-five type jobs that we have and the studyings that we do. And we're called to stay dressed for action in the midst of these. The second part of the image then, in verse 35, is there is this discussion of lamps burning. 
And again, this could seem a little bit hard to process for us because lamps in our day are things we never have to think about keeping burning. I mean, my wife and I and our kids, when we were camping this summer, we had a lamp that we brought and a propane tank that came we, we bought. It was like 4 or $5. And that was enough. It was probably enough for weeks, if not a month, to keep the lamp burning every single evening. We never had to think about consolidating or, or making sure we had enough uh, propane or oil to keep the lamp going. But in those days, I mean, there's other parables that have very similar discussions to this. The lamps would be something you have to think about. You have to make sure you've got enough oil. This is not something that's just going to keep going forever. And in that way, that's how we are to be as well. To keep our lamps burning. In other words, to be ready for Christ's return for the long haul. Not to be, not to be thinking our walk with Christ is just going to be a short burst and then we're just going to burn ourselves out but to be really thinking, how am I investing in my family, and myself, in my walk with Christ for the long term so that I'm ready for Christ's return, not doing it in a way in which I'm just going to lose my fuel and collapse and fall away from the Lord in the end. I think it's worth thinking about in terms of even as we're in the world every day, how do we make sure we're not just becoming like the world, but we continue to become like Christ? Are we keeping the oil in our lamps going? Are we just letting it fade and, and burn out so we're not living for Christ and we're not even expecting his return? So being ready in this passage does not encourage passiveness. I hope you see that. The image is not supposed to convey that you're just supposed to wait around and say, okay, when's Jesus coming back? We're not supposed to do anything. The image is not saying that. This image is also not just telling us, you know, read tons of books about Jesus' second coming and just wait and and sit on your sofa reading those books. It's not uh, emphasis on speculation, but it's the emphasis on right living to prepare for Christ's return. The point is to be awake, to be ready for action, to be alert in our Christian walk, and to be walking as Christians in every part of our life. For us to be dressed for action means following Christ as we work, following Christ as we raise our kids, following Christ as we deal with trials and sufferings of every day. Being active in our faith in the long-term way. From here, if we look at the illustration, there's also something curious that adds on in verse 38. It says, If he, that is the master, comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So the question then is, what is the second or third watch? Well, there were two time ways of measuring time back then. There was the Roman way of measuring time, and there was the, the Jewish way of measuring time. And regardless of which time in particular is here, both of them would put the second and third watch in the middle of the night, the most horrible hour that you would never want to be woken up. I think it would be somewhere around three in the morning or something like that. The idea being, have your clothes on in an inconvenient way that will not help you to sleep because your loins are girded, and have it on at three in the morning and don't be asleep. And then when the master comes back, you'll be blessed. That, that is quite a picture there. So what is Jesus getting at here? Why is he saying that how we wait and be dressed for action is like being ready as a servant in three in the morning for your master to come back from a wedding? First of all, this is not a call for Christians to stay up all night every night. <laughs> That's not the point of this passage, that if you are a true Christian, you'll always be up at three in the morning. That's not what this is saying here. 
It's a picture, and a picture illustrates the truth. I think what this is saying then is this is a picture of us maintaining faithfulness to Christ even when it is inconvenient, even when it is costly to us, even when we are exhausted and we, we just want to be doing other stuff. When things are going strange and hard around us, are we willing to continue to wait upon Christ and not just turn to the world for comfort, but turning to Christ for our comfort? You know, there's two ways I, I like to think about this. When people ask you about yourself and you know that they're hostile to Christianity, but they want to know what you did on the weekend or who you are or what you're passionate about, do you then shy away from even mentioning that you're a Christian? Is that inconvenient to you? Is that something you try to suppress? Or is it something that you lovingly still will bring up and still with boldness because this is who you are and you're not going to, to turn away on the third watch of the night? And likewise, another thing I can't help but think of, we're, we're in a season in which we have an election coming up this month. It's not too far away. When we think about uh, the election, when we think about voting, we think about our priorities, do we think about whatever the media tells us to think about and the world tells us to think about is important? Or do we think about it as Christians and say, what am I going to emphasize in how I think the priorities are? What is the Bible tell me, and, and how will I try to honor Christ in the voting process by even thinking about topics that the world doesn't like? Uh, I can't help but think of the fact that abortion is a topic in which a lot of people don't like it to be brought up, or a lot of people don't like to talk about the reality of that. Are we willing as, as Christians to be up in the third watch of the night with our faith, saying, I will not compromise my faith in any area, I will allow it to be brought up in different areas of my life, in every area, without having to put it away as if it's not there anymore. We are still called to lovingly confront these issues, even if the world doesn't like us really, even if we become, you know, the awkward person in the conversation because we have a different view than everyone else, if we start to appear like we're not politically correct like everyone else. The idea of this third watch in the night is... There, there is this difference that we're, we're called to wait upon Christ even when it's hard, even when it's, it's exhausting, even when it's long, even when it's inconvenient. Point two in the outline is waiting involves action. Waiting for Christ, sorry, wait for Christ by being faithful constantly. The book of Titus gives a very similar uh, illustration. It says, Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then it says this, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. Here, at the very end of that passage, it even says, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In this passage, Titus actually is bringing together, being a godly person, having right living, and waiting for Jesus. These are all connected right together here as we think about the return of Christ. The last thing I want to look at in the text is the fact that there is this word repeated three times in this part of Luke chapter 12, and it is the word blessed. We see the word blessed in verse 37, 
where it says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. Likewise, in verse 38, it says, If he comes in the second or in the third, as we were just looking at, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. And then just a little bit after what we're going over, in verse 43, it says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, being the faithful person. There is this emphasis in this text upon blessing. The master himself is going to do something remarkable here. If we look back at that picture of the wedding, the servants who have girded their loins and are trying to be ready for their master to come back and are trying to keep themselves up at three in the morning or whatever, maybe they're using coffee at that point, who knows, but it's a picture. At that point, the picture then is the master, imagine he does come back at three in the morning and he finds the servants ready to let him in. You know, it's not like the master's knocking at the door and they're asleep. They're like, what? The master's back. Oh no, I forgot about everything. Ah. Uh, the idea is that they're actually ready for the master. They're like, yes, it is three in the morning. Yes, we've had a terrible time waiting for you to come back. But yes, welcome back, master. Come on in. The picture then really has a twist that would have been really strange to the original audience. In verse 37 and 38, it says here, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. That's the master they've been waiting for. The master will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them? He will come and serve them. This would have been a pretty astonishing picture for the first century audience who were reading this. They would say, no, 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 you can't put that in here. The master doesn't serve the servants. That's not how it works. The servants serve the servant. They were the ones who girded their loins, who were waiting at three in the morning to do their job. So the master comes back and everything's good. But in this text, it, Jesus turns it around. And if they're actually faithful like this, that master is going to come and serve those people. No master normally did such a thing. And I'm sure if we thought about it in our own lives, we would probably think in our own jobs that this is not a normal expectation you come to your own work with. You know, if you have office jobs or you have bosses who are over you, I would expect you don't come to work expecting the boss to come to you and say, hey, I want to serve you today. You go over there on that couch in the lobby, read a nice book, and I'm going to do your work for you. I'm going to go on your computer, read your emails, and I'll reply to them all for you. Uh, uh, yeah, just don't work. Uh, but this is like a picture that Jesus is giving us here, that the master is going to serve them. And it says here to have them recline at table, to relax, and he's going to, to bring this service to them. Why is Jesus mentioning this? This is the amazing reality of the second coming of Christ and the reality of heaven. And one of the points that Jesus wants us to have in our minds, that when Jesus comes back, Jesus is promising this actually will happen to his children. In John chapter 14, verse 2, we get a further illustration of this, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The idea here, of course, would have also been very surprising. We don't normally imagine that the Prime Minister of Canada or the Queen of England is preparing a house for us or a place or a room for us with nice things for us to go into, to, to say to your friend that, yeah, the Queen of England's preparing a place for me tomorrow. I'm going to go and uh, hang out in that apartment that she's preparing. That'll be nice. No one would expect that ever. But how much more to say that God himself is preparing a place for us to serve 
us who would be faithful to him? That seems hard to comprehend and to believe. But we know that this is true because this is what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. When Jesus died for us on the cross, he was serving his children, giving them the forgiveness for their sins, even though his children had done bad things. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say while we had cleaned ourselves up, while we were perfect, while we had done everything already, but while we were still sinners. Jesus has come to love his children, to serve his children, to help his children. We're called to live faithful lives as Christians, to submit to him, to repent to him, and to also long for him in his return. And the longing is helped by us just seeing what a remarkable, wonderful picture is of Jesus coming back. That part of his coming back is illustrated in the fact that he's even going to serve his own children, those who have been faithful and watched until the three in the morning, um, the, that, that strange hour that's mentioned. And I would say to each of you, doesn't this help you to long for heaven, to long for Christ's return? Doesn't this make you long also to be faithful to Jesus right now in whatever areas of life you are going through struggles and difficulties and trials? This is the very promise for those who will be faithful to Christ in this life. Uh, don't you then think it's worth whatever hardships we're going for, going through, that we don't have to just become worldly people who only grow in worldliness but not Christ? We have so much to look forward to, so much to anticipate, so much to think about. And it's not as if it's an optional thing. Jesus wants us to think upon his second coming. How can we be ready for something that we never think about? In conclusion, I have a, I have a quote here I'll just read from a, a theologian, Anthony Holcomb. He says, The loss of a lively, vital anticipation of the second coming of Christ is a sign of a most serious spiritual malady in the church. The loss of a lively, vital anticipation of the second coming of Christ is a sign of a most serious spiritual malady in the church. We also should think about this as a church together. How do we spur one another on to really believe that Christ is coming back? That this world has trials, this world has blessings, but through it all we continue to long that Jesus come back. That leads us as well to point three in the outline. Being ready for Jesus' return is to be blessed. From there, we should all ask ourselves, to what extent then are we eager and anticipating Jesus' return? If we aren't anticipating that, we need to ask ourselves, why is that? What functional thing is happening in my heart to make me not long for Christ's return? What is getting in the way? What can I be repenting of so that I can open my heart towards Christ's return, towards Christ being my Lord and Savior in my own life. What practical steps do you need to take in your life, do we all need to take in our lives? Do we, what do we need to do as a church to better live a life of waiting for Christ and, and having that motivate and change how we live? How can you be better ready for action, being dressed for action? How can you better keep your lamp burning? How can you better anticipate like a thief in the night? And lastly, if we are thinking upon it, if we are faithful to Christ, let us remember it is a delightful expectation, not a burdensome expectation we're to have. Jesus' death upon the cross has secured the salvation for all who will believe in him, and now his return will bring us to be back with him. 
And as it says in the very end of the New Testament, in the last chapter of Revelation, it says three times, which a threefold repetition is important. It means pay attention and listen, because it says here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And in verse 20, it says, surely I am coming soon. Jesus is not lying when he says this. This is a threefold emphasis, and it's a wake-up call for all of us as Christians and people in the church. We are to live with the reality that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you tell us what is important in Scripture to study, to, to think about. And, and we know that we are to think upon the idea of Jesus' return because you yourself have put it in the Scriptures. You have brought emphasis upon it yourself. And may we live dressed for action. May we live keeping our lamps burning. May we live even in the third hour in our faith. May we live knowing the blessedness of how blessed it is to wait upon Christ. And may you give us the strength to change our lives, and may this be a motivation to change how we live. The fact that we're not only living to just die and decompose in the ground, we're living knowing Christ is coming back. We're living knowing that our suffering has meaning, that you work all things for good for those who love you. Would you help us, Lord, to live out these truths and help us in our minds as a church, in our small groups, as a families, to also think upon Christ returning a second time, not getting into undue speculation, not trying to guess the hour, but anticipating and encouraging one another to live a life that follows Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.